wrote to the Queen in her diary, a little darling with lovely complexion and pretty fair hair. Bertie later wrote anxiously to his mother, I do hope that you and Papa are as delighted as we are to have a granddaughter, or would you sooner have another grandson? I know Elizabeth wanted a daughter. A daughter was fine, he was reassured. After all, she was hardly likely to inherit the crown. Public reaction to the birth was relatively muted, not least because the baby's rich Scottish grandparents were major mine owners. But a crowd of loyal royalists soon gathered in Bruton Street in the hope of seeing the princess and to greet the messengers arriving with telegrams and presents. But within a fortnight, the papers had more serious matters in mind. At one minute to midnight on May the 3rd, the general strike began. Nearly two million workers downed tools. The transport network was crippled, printing presses ground to a halt, and vital food deliveries were held up. The government responded by bringing in an army of specially recruited policemen to keep food supplies moving and volunteers to drive the buses. In the absence of the usual newspapers, the government published its own, called the British Gazette, edited by the exuberant Chancellor Churchill. A miners' strike is a process of reducing people by cruel losses on all sides. Government miners, mine owners are all reduced to the same position where, after the lapse of time, they come into a more reasonable frame of mind and offer in weakness or in sorrow to make a settlement. But that is an entirely different thing from the concerted, deliberate, organised menace of a general strike in order to compel Parliament to do something which it otherwise would not do. A general strike in a great number of trades obviously means, if it were continued for any length of time, the ruin of the country. However, sympathy for the miners came from an unexpected source, the King. While not allowed to intervene publicly, behind the scenes George V urged the government not to ban unions from distributing much-needed money for food. And while at Newmarket races, on hearing one wealthy landowner calling the strikers a damned lot of revolutionaries, the King rounded on him angrily. Try living on their wages before you judge them. Then, nine days after it began, the strike ended. The unions capitulated without a single concession. The miners trickled back to work with lower pay and longer hours than ever. Terrible industrial relations would continue through the decade as Britain moved towards the Great Depression of the 1930s. Miners would be particularly hard hit, with unemployment reaching 70% near some pits. Millions of mining families would be left destitute. Oblivious to all political tumult outside the walls of her grandparents' house, the infant Elizabeth snoozed in her elegant nursery. A few months later, she moved with her parents to their own London residence, another grand townhouse at 145 Piccadilly, two doors down from Apsley House, the Duke of Wellington's palatial home. By the time of Elizabeth's birth, the traffic noise along the mile length of Piccadilly had meant that most aristocratic residents of the great mansions that flanked the ancient highway had moved away, leaving the grand hotels like the Ritz, the gentlemen's clubs and the upmarket stores dating back to the 1700s, such as Fortnum & Mason's and Hatchard's Bookshop. 
life for an upper-class infant followed a well-established regime, and things were no different for royalty. In each royal establishment, there would be a suite of rooms at the top of the house, known collectively as the nursery. Here, Nanny would take over the care of the baby from the time the maternity nurse left, around a month after the birth. Elizabeth's nanny, Clara Knight, known as Alla, was assisted by both an undernurse and a nursemaid, nicknamed Bobo. And nannies were usually handed on down the family, much like the furniture and coat of arms. This was certainly the case for Elizabeth. Clara had been her mother's nanny before her and quietly continued the age-old Edwardian routines, both at 145 Piccadilly and at the York's exquisite country retreat, the Royal Lodge in Windsor Great Park. By the age of two, Elizabeth was already impressing those around her.